Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Craig Diel, I'm the Head of Policy and uh, Research at Commonweal. And this week, I'm joined by two special guests. We have Chris Hanlon, the SNP Policy Development Convener, and Agnes McCauley, uh, who is from SNP Greenock and Inverclyde. Hello, both of you. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. All well. <laughs> so... Um, we're getting by. We're getting by. <laughs> it has been a very busy and exciting time for all of us. I'm sure. I've I've certainly just had a, a busy day of it myself. Um, just today, before uh, coming on to record this podcast, I was speaking at the International Basic Income Earth Network Congress, which uh, this year was being held in Glasgow uh, virtually. Uh, international conference folk from um, all corners of the globe coming in to, to talk about universal basic income. Um, I'll be honest, this has been one of the big fascinating political journeys of uh, of my political career, um, watching the last five years or so. UBI going from this impossible academic exercise to something that is so close to inevitable, it's unbelievable. We now, in, in the current Scottish Parliament, if a basic income bill went to that Parliament, there is a majority of parliamentarians from multiple parties that would support that bill. A UBI is almost inevitable in Scotland now. It's only just a few technical hitches, like, for example, Scotland doesn't have the powers to launch a full UBI at the moment. It needs cooperation from the UK government, and the UK government says no because it doesn't believe in it. Apart from that, <laughs> UBI is right on top of us. So, so speaking at that conference uh, today was really inspiring. Um, I, I know both of you are are quite keen on this as well. Um, and uh, has it has it has have have you seen that same excitement build in your circles? Chris, do you want to go first? You've maybe got more. Oh, goodness gracious. UBI. Oh, goodness. Well, oddly, I don't think I have, but that's because I've been looking at UBI for so long that actually I've, I've, I've gone out the other side. So I think, I think a lot of people that really like UBI and that you know, really have taken it on board as a concept are, come from a generation well, I'll, I'll be honest, that, that grew up watching Star Trek. And this is an underlying concept in the Star Trek universe that UBI, and, and back in the early 90s, late 80s, this was something that was just science fiction and that you looked at and, and you thought, that's not possible, that's not real, that's not true. And then I've spent you know, 15, 20 years thinking about that, wondering about how you would implement something like that, going through all the different iterations, how would you tax people so that you can balance it up and blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. And I've actually evolved out the other side, and I'm like, yeah, UBI, that's great. But now I've found all these other things out the other side, job guarantee, for instance, that is, you know, it's in the same spectrum as UBI and universal basic services as well, that are things that would just fundamentally change our economy, sort of post-capitalist ideas of how an economy would function. So, yeah, I would have been, me five years ago, would have been beside himself with glee that this was the way things had happened. But oddly, not so much, because I'm like, yeah, yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. Well, why is anybody excited about that? Yeah, we do that. But how about all these other things that we could be doing on the other side? Get on with it so that we can do the real stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, 
Personally, I would argue we do the job guarantee first because it doesn't have the same issues. It's something you could do without Westminster's permission. It's something you could do without any further devolved powers. And it's, it's something that's easier to trial as well. The UBI is a really difficult thing to trial because its universality is something that's difficult to replicate in a, in a either geographic or time limited trial. Sorry, I've just run off the list. Uh, well, my local MP, Ronnie Cowan, has been a long-term champion of a universal basic income. And speaking from Inverclyde, where we've got some of the most deprived parts of Scotland, my ears are open to anything that would try and reduce inequality. So if it's job guarantee scheme, universal basic income, making sure we can take control of housing, food costs, energy costs, the things that really make um, life extremely hard for those with the least money. Um, that's what I got involved in politics for at my own, you know, local level. I want to tackle those problems. And um, it's quite impressive, the range of ideas that are getting floated. Um, and let's give everything a good listen and understand where we can go. But I know what you mean, Chris. Um, and Craig, you know, what we can do in Scotland is sorely limited by uh, being in the UK. And UBI is just one of many examples of things that you can't really move while you're part of the UK. And, and that, that comment there about getting into politics just to make things better, I mean, that, that really is the heart of it. Uh, no matter what political slant you're coming from or how you define better, um, even if you have bitter disagreements over what that word means uh, compared to someone on the other side of politics uh, from you. If all of our politicians were doing that, they're trying to make the world a bit better tomorrow than it is today, then that's at least showing the, the pure motive of why, why we're all involved in this weird and sometimes dirty game. Yeah. Um, but in addition to international UBI conferences, uh, my, my day was... Uh, Additionally, made busy by our international, our, our annual celebration of uh, Scotland's finances. Merry Jersmas, everybody! It's Jers Day today. Ooh. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to be talking or, or writing. I, I've already written um, about this for the the Common Rule newsletter. We will have a, a an in depth article and my thoughts on Jers uh, tomorrow. As we record this, um, and I'll, I'll link to that in the description of the, the the podcast after it comes out. So I don't want to go too much into the, the detail of this because we've been around this every year for years now. Um, but yeah, your thoughts, Jers? Today uh, is Scotland still absolutely terrible in everything that it does? <laughs> uh, shall I go first, Chris? I was just thinking. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it is very helpful when you're just an ordinary kind of grassroots activist like me to be able to read pretty authoritative commentary on it from places like Commonweal or from Business for Scotland, Believe in Scotland, saying um, this is what you need to know about the JERS figures because if you read newspapers or other sources, you're probably going to get the impression uh, that we can barely stand on our own two feet in Scotland. A long story that we've been told over and over again, and it's not true. 
So I'm just thinking as we kind of tee up for the COP26 conference in Glasgow, I thought let's just kind of remember, Agnes, how well placed Scotland is to respond to what's a code red for humanity. Uh, Scotland's got 25% of Europe's entire offshore wind power resources and we've got 25% of Europe's tidal energy resource. And that's only a little of the true wealth that we've got as a nation. So how come we seem to have a set of accounts every year that make us look like we're on a sugarly peg? And it's it's just not true. Yes. Yeah, um, so I'm a little amused by Jers. Um, I'm currently reading a book uh, called Less Is More by a guy called Dr. Jason Hickel, and it's uh, it's about well-being economics and degrowth and how we have to transition our economy, uh, you know, to to survive the uh, climate crisis. And he happens to have written a, a blog piece today about gers. I don't think he's necessarily got a, a dog in the independence race, but he's, He's comparing it to the accounting tricks that the British Empire used to smuggle forty-five trillion pounds in adjusted sterlings out of the Indian subcontinent over one hundred and fifty years, and it's it's a devastating piece actually because it it just highlights exactly what Jers is. It's smoke and mirrors designed. It's it's propaganda designed to you know pull the wool over our, our eyes and make us think that we are poor, despite having an embarrassment of riches, as, as Agnes has just described. And that's just the tip of the iceberg as far as Scotland is concerned. Uh, all, you know, all the while, you know, propping up the British state with, with all the revenue that they have, you know, thrown a big blanket over and smuggled out of Scotland over the last 40, 50 years of, you know, draining uh, resources out of the North Sea and, you know, not putting anything back in Scotland. So, yeah, so like, like yeah. Uh, it's, you know, the, the SNP government is trying, I think, more successfully now to frame is, is an embarrassment to the UK. It, it demonstrates how badly the UK has managed Scotland's finances over the last 40 years. If, you know, we have a 30 billion deficit, that's a 30 billion deficit underneath the, the paradigm of a, a UK government. And you know, just compare it to Norway. You know, that's <laughs> this is the outcome you get with the UK in charge. Now let's compare it with Norway. You know, would be a good way to look at shares. I think on a sort of annual basis, it's, it gets more embarrassing with every passing year. I certainly, in this year's report, I certainly obviously see the impact of COVID there as well. And and from a statistician's point of view, we're really in a different era now. We had the pre-COVID set of statistics and we'll have the post-COVID set of statistics and right now we're balancing in between the two. So really what I'll be talking about in, in my article tomorrow is how, how little you can actually take the previous years and apply them to this year and how little you can take this year and apply it to what's coming because it's just going to be three completely, completely different worlds. Um, but what is clear is you are still seeing the effect of the, the deeply re unequal nature of the UK. The, the UK, by many measures, is a very regionally unequal country with 
a lot of the wealth and investment and focus being pulled into London and the southeast. Capital cities are often the richest part of a country, but not to the extent that the, the UK is. Um, and this has been, it's not just left-wing cranks like me saying it. You have respected people in the Financial Times now saying it. You have Boris Johnson saying it now that his majority is dependent on propping up Tories in the in the former Red Wall in the north of England who are, if anything, even more disenfranchised than Scotland because they don't even have the devolution to compensate for the, that sucking of wealth away from their their regions. Um, so, yeah, I think, as you say, there's, there's a lot in Gers, though, that has been put through that mill over previous years and will continue to come out until, of course, we're independent and we have to come up with a new way of measuring the, uh, our, uh, our country and hopefully not doing it with constant reference to the rest of the UK. Um, but now let's move on to the, the real meat of this week's podcast and the reason I've got the two of you here to, to, to talk about things. We have the conference party conference season coming up. Um, all the parties are, are starting to dive into their, their various policy motions, their pitches and, and their ideas from their members. Um, and a lot of these members are looking out with their parties for these ideas. And I'm very happy to say that Commonweal has had a, a productive relationship with uh, several parties in, in Scotland, uh, not just the SNP, but um, the other political parties around Scotland as well. Uh, a lot of people are looking at our own policy library to get ideas. And um, we want to talk about a couple of those uh, that are that may be featuring in the SNP conference coming up. Um, but first up, Chris, you're obviously the policy development convener, you're the, the office bearer who has a lot of influence, not in the not in what which policies pass, but in the mechanism by which these policies come to the floor of conference. And I know a lot a lot of our listeners may not be SNP members, they may not be members of another political party. This can be quite an opaque process from the outside. So can you explain to us that journey of how an idea comes into the party, comes up to conference, is approved by members, and potentially even then goes from party policy to then government policy? So, um, yeah, I mean, you, make, you make a good point there that um, you know, I'm policy development convener. I don't set policy or make policy. It's my job to facilitate party members to do that. So, you know, the way the SNP constitution is structured, policy is made at conference and it's made at conference by passing resolutions that have been submitted by ordinary members in the branches um, and, you know, parliamentarians as well sometimes to, you know, a, a central committee that goes through them all and selects a certain number of the best ones to be put to conference delegates who then have the opportunity to decide which ones they most want to discuss. And then that goes on to our final agenda and they, they get, you know, decided on a conference. So it's a pretty democratic process. Well, certainly theoretically, it's a pretty democratic process. I know a lot of members, certainly I felt that it was a process that could uh, use some improvement and and function a bit better than it than it it was doing, which is why I chose to, to put myself forward to, to do this role, because I think a lot of people felt quite frustrated that 
over time, party conference agendas had become a bit anodyne, a bit anodyne, a bit anodyne. And, you know, sort of backslapping and, and whinging about Westminster that, you know, over things that we could do nothing about and that Westminster certainly wasn't going to do anything about. It seems like a waste of time. So, you know, hopefully I have helped, you know, those party members, or certainly some party members, work through the process of, you know, how do you come up with good policy, you know, what sort of evidence do you consider? How do you go about turning that into good policy? And how do you go about turning that into a, a good resolution, one that can be passed by the party and put into policy? So yeah, I'd like to explore, actually, there's a, uh, a specific thing in here. It is, because it's one that I get asked about a lot, is once a conference uh, motion has passed, it con- uh, has been passed by members, it then becomes the, the party policy. Uh, right now, the SNP are the, the the party of government as well, but you can see policies that are on the SNP party policy document that haven't yet made it to the government policy. So I, I do get questions of, you know, this was passed at Conference X a number of years ago, why is nothing happening on it? Is there a reason for that gap? Uh, that yeah, well, um... explained. It's, it's interesting that you say uh, SNP party policy document, because if you've got an SNP party policy document, I would quite like a copy of it. Thanks very much. That would be very helpful. We had some sort of central repository of everything that's passed at conference over the last 20 years or so. It would certainly make it a lot easier to do my job. Um, yeah, there is sort of a bit of a disconnect, I think, between sort of party policy and its actual implementation. So technically, constitutionally, it's up to the party's National Executive Committee to ensure that policy passed at conference is implemented. It's kind of left up to the NEC how they go about doing that. Um, very often stuff ends up in a manifesto sometime down the line. So that obviously creates sort of lag. So, you know, if the things we pass in a couple of weeks, three weeks, four weeks, goodness, I can't remember how long now. Anyway, a few weeks from now, if those when those things pass, you know, it's going to be five years before there's another manifesto that those things could appear in. A lot of them, particularly on this occasion, are going to be focused on local government, so they could appear in the manifesto for next May. But, you know, that creates a sort of lag. So, you know, stuff passes in the policy, but it might take a while to actually become policy. Um, depending on how it's drafted, sometimes it'll be, you know, a direct call to the Scottish government to look into doing something. Sometimes the Scottish government does look at doing stuff and for various reasons decides not to bother. Sometimes that's for good reasons. Sometimes that's for reasons that party members never find out about. I think possibly that's a communications issue rather than anything else. But yeah, I understand. I appreciate, you know, um, Agnes and I worked on a resolution a couple of years ago in the Scottish Statistics Agency, which was about creating better evidence to base policy decisions on by actually, you know, taking notes as we go along governing this country. So, you know, creating some sort of central repository of all the data that the Scottish government generates and using that as a repository and an evidence base for building policy. And not much has come out of that over the last couple of years, which is a bit of a disappointment. But so, you know, it's not ideal. Could be better. Three stars, (laughs) some improvement required. Again, that's why I'm here doing this role. 
I'll declare a bit of an interest in that statistics agency yeah. policy since it came from um, a yeah. paper that was one of my papers for Commonweal that was born out of a frustration at not being able to find uh, data in so many aspects that weren't important to our research. And um, it was one that I'd never really expected to get anywhere. But as soon as I published it, I started getting contacts from all these other people interested in statistics saying, we found the same gaps as well and we hate it. <laughs> so it's, it just goes to show sometimes the policies that are important aren't the ones that you think will be. Have you read The Fifth Risk? Not I'm trying to remember the name of it. Michael Lewis. It's it talk, it's, it's it's principally about the transition to the Trump um, presidency, but in it there's a huge section where he talks about something that something that Obama did early in his presidency, which was to open up all of the data archives that the U.S. government held in transparent, machine-readable formats, and the subsequent developments that resulted from that. It's well, well worth reading just to see the sort of explosion of technological innovation that came from having access, free access in a machine-readable format to all of the data, particularly the, you know, of weather data that the US collected, you know, that just sat in tape archives for decades. And suddenly when people had access to it, there was an explosion of innovation based on it. And, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're creating all this data inside our government and we're either not bothering to write it down or we're sticking it in a basement behind a sign that says, beware of the leopard. Um, yeah, I, I could end up on a rant about statistics for far too long for any normal sane person out there. So I'll pull this back onto our, our topic for the, the, the week. And we've seen the mechanism now for how policies go through that, that conference procedure, at least uh, within the SNP. Um, not to brag, by the way, but the Scottish Greens do have a policy reference document. I know. That's collected everything that uh, they've, they've ever done. Very useful research. Any other, <laughs> any other political parties out there that want to, want to steal that idea, let's, let's go for it. But, Agnes, let's talk about your um, motion for this conference now. You have a... Uh, a pitch to create a, a national transport company. What is this? Why is it important? Uh, I do have such a pitch. I'm really hoping as the resolution is on the provisional agenda that we'll get enough support from delegates to make it through to the final agenda. So consider giving it your vote. Um, what I'm talking about tonight comes from uh, the Common Home Plan uh, from Commonweal. Um, I think some listeners will certainly have read it. Um, if you haven't, um, I'd call it a pretty much a fully costed Green New Deal for Scotland. And I've been looking at that for the last several years. Uh, we did have Craig come down to Greenock where we did a public meeting on it. Uh, I think we were probably going to be one of the early stops on a national tour of talks. Uh, before COVID overtook everything. Yeah. So we're just revisiting some of the things that are in the common home plan in which I'm strongly interested. So what I've done is take a resolution to my branch about something in that plan. And the bit I'm focusing on that's really grabbed my attention is the transport section of the common home plan. And specifically, how are we going to get ready for the electrification of transport because we're pretty soon moving towards 
vehicles on the road being battery electric powered, uh, bigger vehicles being hydrogen powered or maybe using some kind of combination. So the common home plan has been really helpful for me in understanding what we actually need to do. Uh, we're setting the targets. What do we need to do to meet them? I'll try and be brief. So one of the top calls in the transport section of the common home plan is to establish a core charging and hydrogen refueling network. And that pretty much means, I think, uh, a network of rapid chargers to cover the main transport routes across Scotland. And it might be worth saying a little bit about where we are now. Um, electric vehicle chargers are still a pretty scarce resource. Uh, I think progress is imminent, but um, I noticed that a few chargers have been installed near my house. Uh, there's often not anything sitting there being charged, but fairly recently, so a man plug in, get back into the driver's seat and he got his newspaper out. And I thought, he's gonna be there a while. How, how do we do this at scale? How is it going to work? And for me, tying back to the question about why you got into politics, how do we make sure that we design in from the start a way in which um, Scotland's people benefit from the harnessing of renewable resources, uh, which are going to be behind uh, transport? So at the minute, what we have is a, a network um, of chargers. Um, they, Local authorities, I think, in the beginning, uh, got 100% grant funded to install chargers so that they could start decarbonising their own car and small van fleet. Um, when you host a charger, you set the tariff. And the local authority ones are mostly free to use because they want to encourage people to use them, get an electric car and plug in. Um, the Scottish government, as well as funding um, grants to put those chargers in, also funds uh, something called Charge Place Scotland, which is the public charging network. And it basically provides the, the back office functions to make the charging network that's publicly accessible work. So you can log on and see where you can find a charger. It will collect um, the money if you use a charger uh, and it will help sort problems. In addition to that, we've also got commercial uh, companies who not only install chargers, um, they will be hosting them and setting the tariff because there is money to be made in the long run from providing um, electric vehicle charging. So Although we don't know how driverless cars are going to develop, we do know how human cars and vehicles, we can plan for how we need them uh, to be supported with access to chargers. So the common home plan, back to that, is saying two major things on this. We need to have a network of rapid chargers installed along motorways and in large parking facilities. That might cost about £100 million to ensure full coverage across Scotland. And the second thing we need is about 20 to 30 large truck depots where larger vehicles are eventually going to be able to refuel with hydrogen. And that's going to cost about 600 million. 
So at the minute, we have Transport Scotland providing strategic oversight and procuring how you get this uh, network in place. Given that we've put public funding into local authorities and subsidy into installing chargers, I would like to see a way of a coherent plan for how we build out from where we are now. And instead of leaving 32 local authorities, um, each with their own hosted chargers, we establish a national transport company that would do the next stage of build out and would run and host the chargers so that the long-term profits to be made from chargers can be ploughed back into uh, the public good. Um, yeah, and that's really the critical part that, that I'm interested in because an alternative way of doing this is to provide grant or loan funding to then uh, commission private companies to install the chargers who, and they would then be able to recruit the fees and ultimately the profits from those chargers. So it's public money that is then leaking out into the private domain. Um, while, yes, a lot of chargers, especially um, council, council land, is, is currently free, I, I do see a case for charging, um, for, for, for fee, a fee for charging, if only because the charge points themselves are still a scarce resource. You don't want someone just parking there all day and hogging the spot. So maybe charge them to sit there for until their, their car is charged and then incentivize them to move on. Um, but the important part of that is those fees should come back into the public purse and re be recycled into expanding the network or supporting the, the council who is effectively renting their land to, to, to provide this service. That's absolutely right. I thought if you were a local authority with many things on your plate to deal with, not least the rebuilding from COVID, how are you going to, um, if you don't charge uh, for using the charger, um, what's the model whereby we're going to get more of them, that you're going to afford to replace them or upgrade them technically? Uh, and working collectively to plan for that with Transport Scotland, plotting the installation and where it needs to go, uh, the complexity of how you do this and tie in, of course, to the much bigger picture of transport, which is uh, where do you plug everything into the grid yeah. and where do we get all the clean, renewable electricity that is going to uh, support all of this transport. So. I'm looking only at a small part of what I realise is a much bigger complex transport and transition picture. Uh, but it's something practical and it's a way of trying to organise collectively to make sure that the long term funding that could come from me plugging in and charging gets ploughed back in to either building up the network or in some way back to the public good. That's the main outcome I'm after. And this is this is one of these policies that really fits well into the the think and do aspect of Commonweal, taking something from from theory into practice. And it was something that that Chris, uh, when just before we came onto the show, we were chatting about. Uh, you mentioned that you do see different types of policies come up to conferences uh, and. 
they're all worthy in their own way, but you get you get policy, policies that are very much principle-based. So maybe a policy on we should decarbonize our transport network. And this particular policy is then taking that further, is going into them, how do you take that principle and turn it into practice? Um and and do you want to just talk about your your your, your thoughts on the position of those kind of motions? Yeah, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There are, you know, we have you know, a number of resolutions coming forward that are, like you say, about principles. So we have, for instance, one that's about adopting the recommendations of the report of the Climate Assembly that we've, we've recently had. And that's, you know, very much just a broad stroke thing where, you know, you're adopting the general principles that, that you know, we what we need to do going forward to survive this existential threat to our species. And but then we also have a number of much more detailed resolutions that are that are getting down into the nitty-gritty of how you actually go about implementing these recommendations. So Agnes's resolution is a, is a perfect example of that, of looking at well, what do we actually have to do to achieve this mm-hmm. and the practicalities of what need to be done to achieve this. And Agnes has rightly recognized that this is the sort of thing where you know it's it's far better done in the public sector. Because you know, there's you need to have a network that reaches the whole country. You can't have an, a national charging infrastructure that doesn't reach Lewis. You can't have one that doesn't reach Aviemore. You can't have one <laughs> that doesn't reach Aaron. So you know, a lot of these more remote locations are going to be not commercially viable, and you know, in reality for them to exist, they have to be subsidised by the much more profitable ones in other areas of the country. And so that's going to require it to be something that's done in the public sector rather than in the private sector, because it just won't function. You know, we've all seen over the last what, 40 years how effective deregulating the, the bus industry has been in you know, destroying rural bus services. <laughs> You know, if you want rural bus services, it needs to be in the public sector so that the profitable sections can subsidise the unprofitable sections. And, you know, there's a similar resolutions about um, a state energy company for exactly the same reasons, that there's, there's so many things that must be done, need to be done. It's crucial that we get started on doing, and the reality is that it's an enterprise that, that isn't commercially viable as a sort of national venture, it's more a, a mission for all of us should refuse to accept it. So yeah, yeah, there are one or two very sort of broad stroke uh, principle resolutions that have been put forward, um, mostly, like I said, the one on the, the report of the Climate Assembly and also the one on the report of the uh, Social Justice and Fairness Commission, which is also very, well, if you haven't read it, Shame on you, get out there, read it immediately, because it's well worth reading. The same with the report of the Climate Assembly. You would just be amazed at the sort of breadth of ambition, in particular of the delegates to the Climate Assembly. You know, ordinary Scots got together and they sat and they discussed these issues and they looked at the evidence and they said, right, this is what we need to do. And wow, you know, I'm amazed at just how much courage they displayed in saying, right, no, this has to be dealt with and this is how it has to be done. So, yeah, we have a couple of resolutions like that, but many of the other resolutions are like Agnes's one. They, they really drill down into, well, this is what's going to have to happen then. <laughs> and that's important, I think, because people need to know 
they need to know that actually to get from here to net zero is going to involve a little bit of inconvenience at some stage along the way. You know, we're going to have to take your feet up at least once. <laughs> it's going to have to happen. And I know that's inconvenient, but, um, you know, the alternative is um, everything on fire and everybody has to buy a snorkel to get around their own living room. Sorry, I've gone off on one again. Yes. Well, let's just finish off. We are coming to the end of the show now. So, again, Chris, because you're the person who uh, has all the the procedures to hand, do you just want to put a wee call out to, especially SMP members who are looking forward to conference, just the details of the conference, um, how they can get involved, and especially how they can get involved with the the promotion of the the motions and and policy, policy development, not just for this conference, but for future conferences? Right, so our our national conference is coming up on the ooh, 10th, 11th, 12th or 13th, I think, of September. Um, I think if you want to be a delegate to that conference, you need to be registered by the 27th of this month. So get your finger out. Um, and that's important because our new constitution, well, I say new, it's like three years old now, but one of the things that it changed was it put the onus very much in conference delegates how to, to decide what was on the agenda for conference. So while the conference committee that I'm a member of you know, creates this provisional agenda that is regularly leaked to the press, um, <laughs> it's actually conference delegates that have the responsibility for deciding which of these resolutions actually ends up on the final agenda. We have a little bit of wiggle room to put important stuff on, you know, but, you know, the principle is that conference delegates vote. They look at the provisional agenda and they say, right, we think this is important, this is important, this is important, this is important. And that's pretty much how the agenda is formed. And that's, you know, a constitutional fact in the Scottish National Party. I'm very pleased that the new constitution is is set up that way. So that it is, it's no longer up to, you know, 15 folk in a darkened room, what ends up on the agenda. It's conference delegates to decide. So the important thing there is, you think this is important and you think there are things in the provisional agenda that are important. <laughs> you need to be a conference delegate so that you have a say in this matter. So we close submissions for amendments on the 20th, 9 a.m. on the 20th. So that's, you know, if you want to... Two days as we record this. Days, you've got two days, yeah, can't move on. <laughs> and then I think the final agenda is due on the 31st. So I'm not sure what mechanism we're using in the interim for delegates to actually vote, but you know there'll be some sort of vote on what's on that provisional agenda so that we can cut it down to something that's a bit more manageable for conference, because obviously we can't have all of these resolutions, much as I would love to debate all of these resolutions, because everything on this agenda is fantastic, in my opinion. Well, one that I'll certainly be watching um, as it goes through is uh, Agnes and your transport company motion. I'm genuinely really, really happy to see it's it's made the progress it has and to have been a part in helping um, get it this far. So um, so thank you for taking an interest in Commonwealth policy and, and, and pushing it forward to, to the political parties. Um, as we come to, now to the end of the podcast thank you both chris and agnes for coming on it's been a fascinating chat and uh, be illuminating especially i think for people who are not used to the 
the, the inner world of conference proceedings. Um, but these are important because these are how we eventually turn these weird academic ideas that we have into real change uh, for Scotland. So thank you for coming on and, and sharing your experiences there. Um, and just to say to everyone, as I always do, that Commonweal as an organisation is entirely funded by folk like yourselves who, who support and donate to us. We don't get government money. We're not sponsored by the political parties. We don't have uh, oil barons pushing us checks. We'd refuse them if they tried. Um, we don't even have adverts on our website. All we have is the regular donations from our supporters and people buying our books and other merchandise. So if anyone out there wants to support Commonweal and help us produce the 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 next great policy paper that could be coming to a party conference near you in the years to come, then we greatly appreciate all your support. Thank you once again, Chris Nagus, for coming on, and I'll see everyone next week. Thank you.